0: Welcome to the Plenty of Gas podcast, the podcast with plenty of great Australian stories. I'm your host Luke Sutton and today's podcast is actually our very first feedback and updates podcast. It's an opportunity where we get to squeeze a little bit more out of each story while at the same time giving you, the listener, a voice. Today's feedback is Episode is on episode 3.2, episode 3.1, episode 2 and episode 1 in that order. Some of the questions we will look at. Did the QF30 have divine protection? Why scoff at the idea of aliens abducting Golemtich? The City of Churches, why does it still have the reputation when clearly it shouldn't? Peak oil, will it be the end of the world? The mystery of the first kangaroo George Stubbs painted and... The Murder at Bruce Rock and Alternate Theories. So without any more ado, let us begin. For a moment, I want you to just imagine that you're camping out in the middle of the outback next to a small creek, when suddenly a flash flood comes and washes your camp away. This analogy perfectly describes my email account. So let's get washed away together. Our first group of emails is with regards to the QF30. Brandon states Hi, I enjoyed your take on the QF30 I remember at the time that there was some speculation that the Pope had just been on that plane moments before From what I can gather this is not true but with all the miracles you claimed that happened I'm now amazed that he wasn't actually on board Joy also writes Just wondering what happened to the plane in the end You never really did say Did they scrap it? Thank you, Brandon. Thank you, Joy. Now, for my reply. You are correct. The registration of the QF-30 flight which experienced the explosion was VHOJK. The registration of the Boeing which the Pope flew back to Rome was VHOEE, so a completely different plane. While it is possible to find a departure time, a tail number and a flight path of any given flight using just a basic web search, it is not possible to find a passenger manifest using that same method. There are only two ways to see a passenger manifest for an airline. One, be an airline employee, or two, get a court order. What we do know is that there were 373 passengers and crew on board that day consisting of 342 adults, 27 children, 4 infants, 16 cabin and 3 flight crew. Out of all those people, none were ever reported to have been high profile or celebrity status. And other than the media commenting on several who were returning after either proposing marriage or having been proposed to, nothing remarkable or miraculous about any of the passengers was ever suggested. When we have a group of coincidences like this, logically, people often perceive it as something that exceeds the daily norm. We begin to look deeper into a hidden cause. The truth is, this was just a large group of coincidences. There was no conspiracy at large, no messiahs on board, and no mysterious force at play. Simply put, it was just a coincidence. But this raises a very profound question. How many coincidences need to take place before it is no longer a coincidence? To illustrate, let's take the example of life. Earth is just the right distance from the sun, which is also just the right size and right chemical makeup. Earth's orbit is just right, the planet's size is also just right, its speed is just right, the tilt of it is also just right, the accompanying moon is just right in every aspect, we also have just the right atmosphere, uh, just the right magnetic field, we also have just the right water, carbon, oxygen and nitrogen cycles. This is just a small list to the billions of coincidences vital for life as we know it. For instance, the probability of a single non-living amino acid to develop by itself the special structure of living matter is 1 in 10 to the 123rd power, in other words 10 with 123 zeros behind it. Any number that large is considered scientifically to be impossible. But that is just an example of a single chance. Now take into account the billions and billions of other chances needed and logically it begins to look like more than just a coincidence. However, the paradox of a coincidence is that if something is genuinely a coincidence, then it does not matter how many coincidences really occur on top. It's still just a coincidence. But what makes the origin of life so much more perplexing is that we have the ability to appreciate this. To be awestruck by it. We have the best means possible internally and externally to analyse life. We have also been given the best location in the universe to do this. Now is that just another coincidence? Or is that intelligent design? Returning back to the QF30. Here we do not have a billion of coincidences, but only a handful So other than a novel list of coincidences, no greater force really needs to be at play. For pure novelty reasons, here are a few more coincidences not mentioned previously in regards to the QF-30 explosion and how lucky all the passengers really were. Number 1. Captain John Bartels originally wanted to fly at the preferred height of 33,000 feet but couldn't as that airspace was already compromised and so he had to settle for 29,000 feet. This was extremely lucky because a higher altitude would have only meant a longer descent, adding much more risk. Number two. The section of the floor in the plane where the oxygen cylinder exploded is actually the same place where the air stewardesses make up the bar carts. It is just lucky that they had just finished making them up and had exited the area approximately 10 to 20 seconds beforehand. If someone was still in that area when the oxygen bottle ruptured, then they would have either fallen through the floor and been sucked out of the plane, or killed by the impact of the exploding canister. Number 3 They were also very lucky to have had a reasonably quick diversion option that being Manila. If something bad happened in the region, let's say, between Fiji and Hawaii, or even between Hawaii and the US, then there are not really a lot of good options there. Number four. Every time an oxygen bottle is checked, then it is usually placed in a different location in a plane. It is very fortunate, therefore, that it was located where it was, because if it wasn't, then it would not have been in the firing line of the R2 door handle, which spent much of the missile's exploding energy. With all this in mind, the flight crew, unlike the passengers, did not actually view the QF-30 as a bad omen, but more as a lucky one. This brings us to Joy's question, what happened to the plane? Structural repairs were conducted at Manila. It was then ferried to Avalon on the 10th of November 2008 by a willing Captain John Battels and his first officer, who still considered the plane to be a lucky charm. While in Avalon, the carpets and seat covers were quickly replaced. Then on the 18th of November 2008, after all work was complete, The plane suffered more damage when another Qantas Boeing 747 jet collided with it on the tarmac. So much for the lucky charm. However, it was then again fixed and the aircraft eventually returned to service in Australia on the 15th of January 2009, now masqueraded as the QF-12. For one reason or another, by the end of 2009, it was then retired from Qantas Airline and was placed in storage in January 2010. It must have been sold, however, because it soon became registered again, this time as a Nigerian aircraft with the registration 5NMHB in October 2011. Though the plane first came off the production line on May 1st 1991, and remembering that the average lifespan of these planes is just 15 years. Amazingly, today it is still being flown by Max Air for Hatch flights, making it 22 years in service. Six years past its use-by date. If you intend to fly overseas... It may pay for you to do a quick check on the history of the plane you are intending to take, as it seems that many air services are counting on the fact that you don't. Did any of the passengers of the QF-30 have divine protection? I guess I'll leave that for the flying spaghetti monster to decide. Our next group of emails is on the Valentich mystery. Our first email comes from Glug the hybrid alien it says I'll spare your ears from the rest of the email I ran the message through a translating system it translates Hi, I am a very lonely child currently on school holidays bored out of my brains please help an even more nonsensical email comes from the Dark Knight who sends me a link to a website which claims that Frederick Valentich, was found five years later in 1982 in the village of Imen in Russia. This was published by soldiers Lieutenant Igor Kazanistev and Nikola D in a newspaper known as the Secret Doctrine. They claim that they originally found the man posing as a prospector with documentation claiming his name was Sarachev. It was only later under the pressure of interrogation that he changed his story. The unusual man was carrying a small black flask on him, with strange markings on it. Inside the flask, they found an English test scroll, which stated in a nutshell that the man standing before them was in fact Frederick Valentich, who was abducted by a UFO and offered to become a pilot to one of their spaceships. He has not aged since being abducted and is still 25 years old. The note then proved that the claimant was Valentich by stating various facts about him that only he would know, such as that his mother is dead and that he is single with no children, also that he has an aunt and two ex-girlfriends. The note then claims that Valentich's pilots an alien cargo ship, consisting of three aliens from the Pleiades constellation. These aliens have the same build as us and breathe oxygen. And it is oxygen what they have come to Earth to collect, two times a week. They gather the oxygen in balloons, which they then transport to Jupiter's satellite Callisto, where a huge alien base is currently operating. The black flask was then sent for testing and the results came back material unknown. A graphology test was then done on the note and it came back verified to be Valentich's owned handwriting. Even though this website claims this account to be authentic, it then highlights another account given by Manuel Carabal who reported that Valentich was alive and well on the island of Tenerife in the Canary Islands. The individual claiming to be Valentich was able to produce his passport to Manuel, verifying his claim. The man then went on to give exactly the same story as above, recruited by aliens to steal our oxygen. Dark Knight is concerned. He concludes by asking, "What do you think?" My reply: I think Lug, the hybrid alien, has a web page. Do you really want me to shoot holes in this? First of all, Valentich's mother is not dead; she is very much alive. Second, Valentich was twenty years of age when he disappeared, not twenty-five, as the story given. Valentich would not have needed a passport for local flight. The story states that Valentich was smart enough to write a long note on a flask for the Australian embassy and give random proof which in turn anyone could give, but not clever enough just to phone his father to verify his authenticity. As for the oxygen stealing, are you serious? They are smart enough to travel to produce interstellar travel, but... Not smart enough to harvest the quadrillion tons of ice closer to their home planet using simple electrolysis? Please. David writes. Fact! There are trillions of stars in billions of galaxies. Fact! There are millions of planets in age and proximity to a sun like our own. Fact! There is a rising in UFO sightings. Thousands of people claim to have been abducted. To claim that ETs have never visited us is foolish. Sir, you scoffed at the idea that Valentich was abducted by aliens, and I in turn scoff at your scepticism for thinking so. Sir, you are a fool. My reply. Look out Wikipedia. David the Fat God is taking over. Your whole argument for believing in life on other planets is that there is life on this planet, and there are millions of other planets, so logically one of them should also contain life. While this basic concept may seem reasonable, we have already discussed that logically we shouldn't exist, never mind all the other planets. To illustrate, it would be like me stating that if we found a dead guy in a trunk of a car, then with all the other car trunks in the world, surely one of those must also have a dead guy in it. While this is theoretically possible, to then complicate it by adding that that life must be intelligent, is like me now adding the same billions of coincidences needed for life into the same illustration. For instance, I just found a dead guy with a brown wallet with his name in it called John Smith and $253, who is also wearing one brown sock, one pink one, wearing bunny ears with a frozen cucumber sticking in his forehead. Now, with all the other car trunks in the world, surely one of them also must have a dead guy with a brown wallet with his name in it called John Smith and $253, who is also wearing one brown sock, one pink one, wearing bunny ears with a frozen cucumber sticking in his forehead. Do you start to see the absurdity? The other problem is interstellar travel itself. Physicist Bob Park highlights that the problem is the kinetic energy needed to be imparted to the spaceship, one-half the mass times the velocity squared. Physicist Edward Purcell agrees, studying that to attain a speed of 0.99c, we need an initial mass which is a little over a billion times the final mass. So in the ideal case, where you had somehow mastered nuclear fusion with 100% efficiency and could control and direct the energy in whatever way you choose, you still will need... 1.6 billion tonnes of fuel for each tonne of payload. He then concludes the concept using nuclear fusion is absurd. Also, in order to achieve the required acceleration, our rocket near the beginning of its journey will have to radiate more than the total power the Earth receives from the Sun. But this isn't sunshine, It's gamma rays. So the problem is not to shield the payload, the problem is to shield the Earth itself. Absolutely laughable. Trumping that, physicist Von Horner considers the proposal for a huge scoop, or funnel for a rocket to fuel itself as it goes along, scooping up galactic hydrogen. Problem is, interstellar matter has very low density and in order to collect a thousand tons of manna on a trip to a goal 5.6 parsecs away, one would need a funnel a hundred kilometres in diameter. Again, ridiculous. Conclusion? No proof. Didn't happen. David, you claimed it was foolish not to consider alien abduction as being a likely answer. Yet I find it foolish to consider alien abduction as the most likely answer just because something is shrouded in mystery. As long as more rational explanations exist, then we do not need to look further than a planet Earth for a solution. There are a number of very reasonable explanations. The most plausible is that he made the whole thing up. While it is true that he may have lowered his altitude to take a better look at something... Once realising it was nothing significant, he may have embellished the rest of the encounter. Knowing that he was soon to lose his pilot's licence anyway, and that this was his only chance left to create a celebrity status for himself. Mid-journey during his larrikins, something may have genuinely gone wrong with his plane, causing it to crash into the ocean. The strange noise reported as something hitting the plane could have just been loose panelling to his own plane. Slapping back and forth in the wind. But this does not explain the conspiracy afterwards, you say. Well, the conspiracy is easy to explain. There was none. An independent researcher, Mr Basterfield, stated, When asked to choose between a public service stuff-up or a conspiracy, people should opt for the stuff-up. Put simply, many people within a department will have no idea how their filing system works and where files end up. Human error happens constantly, whether it is in a government office or a bank. To illustrate this, let's go back to the QF-30. There were three recorders in the QF-30, a cockpit voice recorder, known as CVR, and a flight data recorder, FDR. These two are known as the black boxes of an aircraft. Additionally, there was a QAR an optional recorder that the operator has chosen to fit to all his Boeing 747s. First, the CVR. This recorder runs on a two-hour loop. The problem is is that it was still running after the plane had landed and was being towed to a hangar, wiping out the crucial part where the explosion had occurred. Next is the FDR, which runs on a 25-hour loop. But this is a data recorder and not a voice recorder. Last but not least is the QAR, but that was amazingly in sleep mode and only awoken after the explosion, so there is no recording of the QF30 explosion. While all these coincidences have the making of a conspiracy, in reality it is nothing more than human error. Another rational explanation which seems to be unfairly disqualified is spatial disorientation. While prolonged upside down flight has been negated as a possibility, constant downward barrel rolling or even just what is known as the graveyard spin is still very much plausible. Each ear canal has a fluid which will bend hairs in our canal when we enter a turn. This is what sends a signal to the brain that we are in fact turning. The problem is that after a 20 second constant turn, the hairs return to normal and our brain, without visual stimuli, will begin to think we have ceased turning when in fact we haven't. If the pilot tries to compensate by turning in the opposite direction, then the whole sensory delusion repeats itself, sending the pilot in a downward spiral. The other plausible explanation is that it was a military craft of some description. The problem is, though, that no military craft declassified perfectly fits the description given by Valentich. Valentich originally asked if there was anything flying below 5,000 feet. This seems to indicate that it was not 5,000 feet below him, but rather that he was flying at the altitude of 5,000 and something below him was beginning to compromise his airspace. If the object in question was just a thousand feet below him, then hardly is out-of-this-world technology required to explain any special type of feat. John wants to know, What proof is there that Australia was experimenting on weather welfare at the time? Thank you, John. Good question. Intentional weather modification has constantly on and off since 1903 been a source of interest to the Australian government. The most widely tested form of modification is the practice of cloud seeding. This is where certain substances are deliberately dispersed in clouds to increase rain or snow, or on the flip side, to suppress hail and clouds. The most common chemicals toyed with is silver iodide, dry ice, liquid propane, and more recently, table salt. The use of silver iodide has been brought into question. Some claim that it is possible with intense or continued exposure, it could cause temporary incapacitation, or partial remaining injuries in both humans and mammals. However, several ecological studies performed in 1995 and 2004 reported that the toxicity of silver from the silver iodide used in cloud seeding programs were considered to be insignificant when compared to general industry emissions or even exposure from individual tooth fillings. Accumulations of it in the soil, vegetation and surface runoffs have not been large enough to measure above the natural background. Yet, these reports are not taking into account highly sensitive environments. One example used is the already endangered pygmy possum which is sensitive to this chemical. While the Weather Modification Association responded, not every cloud has a silver lining. In other words, they don't always use silver iodide. Weather modification has been practised in the past in the areas of Tasmania, and it can also be fired from rockets or released from aircraft. But no official cloud seeding programs have been divulged around the time Valentich disappeared, though it must be noted that in 1978, weather modification was being treated as highly classified. The biggest problem with it being military, though, is since the aircraft in question was reported to be able to travel at incredible speed, why didn't it just fly away? An investigator from New Zealand named John writes, Enjoyed your podcast on Valentich, but you claimed he told his girlfriend that he would meet her for the impossible rendezvous of 1930 Hours. I did some independent research on this and could find no other source than one newspaper article. Just wondering if you found another. Thank you, John. The answer is... Yes. Most of my research for the podcast was done on the Trove website which now contains the original classified investigation file on the Valentich mystery. In one of the documents in there it was reported to those investigating that Valentich had arranged to meet his girlfriend at 7.30 which would have been quite impossible since he did not leave Moorabbin Airfield till 6.19pm. However, I may have a solution for this conundrum. Rhonda Rushton was reported to have gone on every other flight with Valentich except this one. In truth, however, she was originally supposed to be on this flight, but had to cancel because she would not have been able to make it in time. If she was originally supposed to join up with Valentich at the airport after having finished work, then taking into account the distance of the pharmacy from the airport, she would have only been able to get there around 730 this may account for Valentich's 7.30 arrangement with Rhonda. For one reason or another, Valentich decided to leave without her. The report also stated, though, that most had commented that Rhonda was not acting normal. Some claimed that she was enjoying the publicity, and her seven days later going to a motel to find Valentich was also brought into question. It is possible, since she spent more flight time with Valentich than anyone else. She may have been privileged to a secret agenda. The thing I find strange is that though Rhonda Rushton was reported to have enjoyed the limelight, I could not find one single photograph of her. So what happened? Of course none of these rational explanations sound as cool as aliens from another planet. Is interstellar travel really possible? Well, maybe we don't even have to build anything. Maybe just like continents shifting where two countries gradually move closer together, just maybe interstellar travel is a matter of time. I guess I'll leave that for Glug, the hybrid alien, to decide. Our next email is with regards to the oil episode. Kevin writes, Tried listening to your podcast, but fell asleep. I'll try again later. He then sends another message. Tried again, but fell asleep again. I'll have to try tomorrow. He then sends his final message. Tried, but you guess what happened. I give up. Now for my reply. I actually re-listened to the podcast. Another than it's about a group of people going deeper and deeper and deeper into a trench... I'm not sure why it has such a hypnotic effect on you, but thank you very much for your email. On that note, good night, Kevin. Our next email. Someone who wants to remain anonymous writes, Thought you were a bit harsh on our ancestors. How compelling in the first place was the correct identification that the blackish substance was in fact dried algae and not oil? If the evidence supported by experts was only conjecture, then it is very reasonable why Australians would examine the more potential and lucrative offers. Now, my reply. The evidence from the start was very compelling. In fact, other than baking the damn dried algae into muffin bread, experts really couldn't do anything more to prove to people it wasn't oil. Within a year of it being found, scientists had already performed a breakdown chemical analysis and had it published worldwide. Though it had some similarities to oil deposits, chemically it was identified as algae. Desperation, oil being scarce, and greed, potential for easy money, largely numbed our nation's critical thinking. I find this story today to be very topical. Currently we are living in a period of time where peak oil is looming. Peak oil is the point where oil production peaks and then declines. This has made various doomsday people prophesy that mankind will soon plummet back into the Stone Age and that society at large will soon club each other to death in a Mad Max cannibalistic fashion. Their advice is build an underground bunker and stock it to the brim with dried biscuits. While it is true that even the experts in the industry have published some disturbing projections, for instance, the Treasury's 2010 intergenerational report estimates that Australia's oil will be gone by 2020. This does not mean there will be no more oil, but it does mean that oil will be considerably much more costly. Australia currently has its head in what is now known as the oil noose. Economy grows, pushing up the price of oil, which tends to choke economic growth. On top of this, we are facing other peaks. Peak gas, peak water, peak fish, peak phosphorus, peak gold, peak silicon, and the list goes on. Because of desperation, we are now seeking other alternatives. Sadly... Yet, even again, desperation and greed have made some invest and continue to invest in the search of some alternatives which have already been proven to be scientifically unsuitable. Regardless of the clear, irrefutable evidence presented, many simply ignore it in the vain attempt to strike it rich. On the other hand, there are alternative fuels that are receiving promising results. One of them, is are you ready for this algae it seems algae can produce up to 300 times more oil per unit area than conventional crops as algae has a harvesting cycle of one to ten days which is 20 to 30 times faster growth than normal food crops their cultivation permits several harvests in a very short time frame harvested algae like fossil fuels releases CO2 when burnt, but unlike fossil fuel, the CO2 is taken out of the atmosphere by the growing of algae and other biofuel sources. Among many of its attractive characteristics is the fact that they can be grown with minimal impact on fresh water resources. They can be produced using ocean or even wastewater, and are completely biodegradable and relatively harmless to the environment if ever spilled. Algae costs more per unit mass due to high capital and operating costs. Yet, as claimed before, its yield is significantly greater. In fact, the United States Department of Energy estimates that if algae fuel replaced all the petroleum fuel in just the United States, it would require only 15,000 square miles. This is one-seventh of the area currently used in the United States for growing corn. Hardly anything. But also what serves as an advantage is that algae can grow on land unsuitable for other established crops, for instance arid land, or drought stricken land, or land with excessively saline soil like Salt Creek. This therefore minimises the issue of it taking away any land for which cultivation of food crops would be preferred. Think about it. Our ancestors mistaken their algae for oil and ruined their lives looking for oil in a region where there was none. However, over a hundred years later, we now know that algae is in fact better than oil and is plentiful in the region where they were looking for normal oil. If only our ancestors were still alive to appreciate the irony. While some promise that algae fuel will be commercially available in 2014, other investing sources claim it is still 25 years away from commercial production and is yet to save our bacon. In the meantime, Australia seems to keep spending oil like it's just won the lottery. Of course, as a relatively new nation, we are now known as being the lucky country. But then the question is, how lucky do you really feel, punk? I guess I'll leave that for Clint Eastwood to decide. Next on the agenda, Selma writes, Hi, I enjoyed your podcast. Just thought I'd let you know that I too live in a city known as the City of Churches. But I live in, I don't know how to pronounce this, so I'll spell it out, T-R-O-Y-E-S, Troyes, I think. Uh, I'm not sure how many churches our city had in the beginning, but currently we have a small number, 10 I think. At one time we were also known for our city coming to life on Sundays when all the church bells rang. Unlike your city, ours is investing millions of euros in restoring and protecting these buildings, their history and our city's identity. She then sends me a link. Thank you Selma. My reply. My biggest regret about Adelaide not keeping its identity as the city of churches is that later generations do not get to experience the wind chime effect of 33 bells going off at exactly the same time, and I myself can only imagine what it may have sounded like. The highest record I could find was 33 churches in Adelaide. Still, there was about 64 different established religions at that time too. Being known as the City of Churches is not that unique. In fact, there are actually numerous amount of cities, over a dozen or so, known today as the City of Churches. Largely all of them are suffering with a similar fate, because churches everywhere are on the wane. Predominantly because of hypocrisy, but coupled with other factors too. A large amount of people prefer to worship in privacy. Some simply don't have the time for the cost of living, while others, approximately a quarter of of South Australia's residents choose to express no religious affiliation at all. In fact, South Australia has the highest amount of non-religious people compared to all the other states. And now, with only eight churches, in Adelaide itself, evidence contradicts the warrant in maintaining such a reputation. But more often than not, you will still hear someone, somewhere, label us as the City of Churches. I've always wondered, therefore, how many churches can a city get down to before it loses its reputation for good? I mean, if Adelaide only had seven churches instead of eight, would it still be known as the city of churches? What about if it had six, five, four, three? In fact, to tell you the truth, It would not surprise me that if we actually knocked down all the churches in Adelaide, someone would still refer to Adelaide as the City of Churches. The problem is reputation sticks, especially if there is no greater image to replace it. And here lies the problem. Today the City of Adelaide has no other reputation or theme to fall back on, or to boost its morale with. Our tourism industry knows this, and largely concentrates on selling our state as a festival state. But this still does not give our city an individual identity. And because there is no official identity given, nothing is used to subtract the old. Other nations, especially media sources, have tried to give Adelaide a different image. For instance, Britain labelled Adelaide as the murder capital of the world, the city of serial killers. However, like the reputation as the city of churches, this is also not true. In fact, Adelaide is not even the murder capital of Australia, let alone the rest of the world. In fact, it was extremely cheeky for Britain to give us that reputation when they themselves have a far greater murder rate than we do. In fact, South Australia's murder rate is 1.7 per 100,000 people. And this is nothing when you compare it, again, to other parts of the world. So, what is the murder capital of the world? Well, it is San Pedro Sula in Honduras, which has the murder rate of 169 per 100,000 inhabitants. However, there are many other ways in which Adelaide could give itself a unique reputation and invest quite easily into it. For instance, we could advertise Adelaide as a city of secrets. What do I mean by that? I'll leave that for you to decide. Continuing on, our next emails are about the George Stubbs, who was the first European to ever paint a kangaroo. Emily sent me a link to a news article stating that the British government had been successful in preventing Australia from obtaining this painting by slapping an export ban on it. She sends this with a smiley face because she is in fact from the UK. On the other hand, Jake shares his disappointment that I made no mention in my podcast on the little mystery behind the kangaroo which George Stubbs had painted. My reply. I understand both nations having individual reasons for wanting to obtain this painting, even if it is just based on historical merit alone, that being a painting which exhibits the impact ...that Australian unique fauna was having on the European consciousness. On the other hand, has neither nation heard of something called sharing? While Australia was successful in negotiating with the actual owners of the painting... ...Britain, when they got word of this, instituted a temporary export ban... ...buying them some time to catch up with the negotiating process. Now, however, they have an interesting predicament on their hands... The export ban will be terminated on the 5th of August, with an extension option available till the 5th of November. During this time, Britain must raise over $10 million, or £5.5 million, in order to keep the painting. So the smiley face might still be a bit premature. Personally, I don't understand all the hype. The painting can easily be seen on the internet, and though this may not be the same as seeing it in real life, it was by no means ever considered to be George Stubbs' best work of art. In fact, Governor Phillip and Surgeon White criticised this painting when they themselves came to Australia and discovered that, that the creature in real life looks nothing like the animal painted. Here lies the mystery. A few scientists have argued back and forth on which species of kangaroo is actually being depicted in the painting. The problem is, no macropod known to Australia actually quite fits the bill 100%. The most preferred suggestion is that of a whiptail wallaby. However, even the whiptail is unsuitable when comparing the incisors made in reference. So what do we know? We know that the kangaroo in question was native to the Cooktown area. We know that Lieutenant John Gore successfully shot a great grey kangaroo and a wallaby, and that another small kangaroo was captured by a greyhound, which was skinned and accompanied by a number of kangaroo skulls, which George Stubbs used in his painted representation. Some lesser favoured suggestions is that of the agile wallaby, or even a small wallaroo as some aspects of either species can easily be seen somewhat compatible either in painting or written description. Yet there are also just as many inconsistencies with both of these suggestions, especially in regards to either body size or simply it being the wrong colour. Yet there are many facts that need to be taken into account, things such as how seasonal changes affect animals, individual deformities. If it was a stray not native to the area, or if native animals have changed or migrated over time. Or even if it is maybe an amalgamation of species, since George Stubbs had a number of skulls at his disposal. While George may have been very good at painting plants and the like, he seemed less capable of painting living animals. In fact, the skills that a chimpanzee might have blowing paint through a straw might be comparable. This was also demonstrated by another one of George Stubb's paintings, which is supposed to be that of a dingo, but in reality looks more like a fox. Yet for some reason, I don't see the experts arguing back and forth about wrong body size or colour with this animal. There are currently three books that have been written on the subject. They are Sir Joseph Banks and the Naming of the Kangaroo, The Actual Identity of the Captain Cook's Kangaroo, and... Captain Cook's Kangaroo. All three books will basically tell you what I'm going to tell you now. Because of a lack of physical evidence and incorrect life scale measurements other than to theorize it is impossible to ever indicate a definitive. Which species was George Stubbs painting? I think I'll leave that for George Stubbs to decide. Susie wants to know what the big deal is about the box in the Bruce Rock murder. And my favourite message of the podcast would have to come from Kevin, who would like to pose two other alternate theories as to Victor McCaskill's possible motive for the killing. His first suggestion is that since Vitter had an unusual preoccupation with his mother, it is quite possible that if the mother was in need of money, let's just hypothetically say because of sickness or an operation needed, then Vita could have intended to kill his wife and then himself so that his mother would benefit from the insurance money, since there was no next of kin. His second suggestion, and the one he himself prefers, is that Vita may have been having or trying to have an affair with Halbert, which Trina found out about. And it was Trina who actually killed Halbert in jealousy. And when Vita discovered this, he immediately flew into a murderous rage, killing both Trina and the baby. He may have then orchestrated the events afterwards, covering up Trina's original actions because he wanted to collect her insurance money, and also his own later involvement. This suggestion seems more likely to fit the nature of the violent crimes committed. Okay, well thank you Susie and thank you Kevin. I can see a lot of thought went into those ideas. Now for my reply. First, with the box. The box being heavy enough for two people has a significant bearing on things when you compare it to other things that we know for certain about the case. First of all, three possibilities could have happened in accordance with the box. One, Vita had requested Halbert to help him move a heavy box onto the veranda. Creepily, this would have meant that Halbert, unaware, was being used callously to transport a utensil which would later be used. In his own murder. Number two. After having killed Halbert elsewhere and concealing the body, Vita then asked Trina to help him move a box onto the veranda. If this was the case, then it is quite possible that Trina may have had suspicions that something was not right. This in turn may have caused Vita to panic and enter into a rage. Or number three. The box had always been on the veranda, and was just used on the spur of the moment as a convenience. One of the biggest things in accordance with this, which needs to be addressed, is that there were no visible markings on Halbert's body, which would suggest a struggle had in fact taken place. Hence, the reason why the preliminary findings was that of suicide. This means that Halbert was strangled most likely while he was in a non-conscious situation. Again, one of three options. One, he was asleep. Two, he was poisoned. Or three, he was intoxicated. Therefore, it is quite possible that Trina may have been an accessory to murder. Assuming she wasn't though... Since Halbert's putrefaction was several hours more advanced than Trina's and Robbins, it seems more likely that Halbert was killed at a distance from the house. Here is an update. I found one newspaper source which commented that Alfred Pryor had originally found Halbert's body lying in the front of a shed and not on the veranda. Even Victor McCaskill informed neighbours that the last place he thought that Halbert had entered was the barn, and wished not to follow him there in case he was taken by surprise. If this was a Freudian slip, then it is highly likely that this is where Halbert met his end. It is not unusual to be able to kill someone in such a place without raising suspicions to those within the house. An example of this was the Hinter murders in 1922. All in the family were led out to the barn one by one to their demise. Others suggest that Halbert was killed where they sewed up the wheat bags. It is even quite possible that Vidda had got Halbert drunk and instructed him to go out to the barn and sleep it off. Then in his sleep, while Trina and Baby were also sleeping, he killed them all. Kevin, your suggestion that Victor's motive was for his mother's benefit is intriguing and places Victor in nearly a norman Bates, Alfred Hitchcock kind of light. I tried to find out what happened with the insurance monies. Trina was heavily insured and her sole beneficiary was her husband. When Victor died, his sole beneficiary was his wife, but she is already dead. So the insurance protocol in both situations is that money gets paid out to the next of kin. This would have been, as you suggested, Vita's mother. One problem though. All life insurances have a suicide clause. And because Vita had committed suicide, both insurance policies would therefore become void. One thing we can be sure of is that Victor knew the terms and conditions of the insurance policies. So if it was in order for his mother to benefit, then it makes no sense of him suiciding in such an obvious manner. Your second suggestion is equally tantalising. The biggest suggestion for this is that Halbert had an unusual fetish for at least 10 years, which the police had never made known to public but which was all expressed in Victor's peculiar diary. While your suggestion does nicely tie in the sheer viciousness of Trina's murder, and it would account for why Halbert was killed in a different fashion, maybe even being poisoned before being strangled, it should be noted, however, that Halbert had not been with Victor for ten years and it is unlikely Vita would have been able to maintain a homosexual relationship for so long without Trina being suspicious. Whatever the fetish was, the investigating police concluded that it had no bearing on the motive, and that the main motive was insurance fraud. However, I would now like to offer another suggestion. People mimic people. There are some similarities between the Bruce Rock murder case in 1930 and the Bath School disaster in 1927, especially in connection with the excessive use of dynamite. In the Bath School disaster, Andrew Kehoe killed his wife, blew up his house, the local school and himself in defiance against excessive taxes. Vita may have been trying to copy the infamy from this event, especially since he was a government surveyor and also a farmer. Back in those days, it was actually quite easy for farmers to collect dynamite. They just needed to say something like, I need some to clear a log, and they would have been able to purchase some. What was really Vita's motives? I think I'll leave that for Mr Hitchcock to decide. Well, that concludes today's feedback episode. I hope you enjoyed everything. Uh, if you want to uh, get in contact with me, uh, if you have a request or a question, you may do so. My email address is one word at y7mail.com or kyzka at y7mail.com Kiska being my ne- nickname. Well, join me next time. Thank you for listening. Bye for now.